Good morning. My name is Jesse. I'm a pastor here at Indelva Grace. And uh, if I've not met you, I'd love to meet you. Uh, I'd love to extend the welcome of Christ to you. So we are in the midst of a series of on First Peter. First Peter, and last week, um, we heard that we are an exiled people, that we do not belong, that we are not home. We're not home. And one thing that exiles need is hope. Hope for relief. Hope for release. Hope for the homeland. One person that knew a lot about hope is Viktor Frankl. He was a psychiatrist, psychiatrist who actually survived the Holocaust. He was a Jew, and so he was put in the concentration camp. And after he survived, he put together a book. It's somewhat of a memoir, somewhat of a, a psychological treatise. It was called Man's Search for Meaning. Man's Search for Meaning. What Brankel observed is that in the concentration camp, the difference between life and death often came down to hope. That those who had something to live for were the ones who lived, and those who did not were the ones who died. He would write in his book, he said, quote, The prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and become subject to mental and physical decay. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. Is that where you are today? Friends, I want you to begin to think about where is your hope? Where is your hope? Have you lost hope, faith in the future? Well, Peter is going to give us a hope this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to encourage you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. You can look on and, uh, on your smartphone, real, real paper. You can also look on it. Well, it's in 1 Peter chapter 1, we're in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance as imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though now you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the preaching of his word. Oh, Father, we thank you for your holy word. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us a taste of this living hope. Thank you that Jesus Christ himself is that living hope. Or would you minister to us now? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
So if you're a note taker, here's here's the, the, the message of the sermon. Here's what God's word summarized says. Because of Christ's resurrection, we rejoice in the sure hope of coming salvation. Because of Christ's resurrection, we rejoice in the sure hope of coming salvation. We'll first look at, we have at four points. We'll look at the hope. We'll look at the coming salvation. We'll look at the resurrection. And then we'll look at the joy, the rejoicing. So first hope, the sure hope. Look back at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope. Because it almost feels like hope has died, doesn't it? Especially there for a while, like in 2020. <laughs> like the world is going to end soon. The pandemic, the race riots, the polarization in our country. It seemed like hope had died. There's been a great revealing in our culture that maybe we're not so civilized or progressive as we may have thought, right? Then there's the pandemic of hopelessness that reflects in our nation's youth. How many disaffected young men have we known, have we heard, that take guns into schools or malls and shoot up people and then turn the gun on themselves? It seems like despair and hopelessness is all around us. It's a different kind of pandemic. Or take depression, this, the psychiatric affliction of hopelessness, right? A new poll this year reported a 10% increase in American adults who've experienced depression. Back in 2015, only about 20%, that's one in five Americans, had experienced depression. Now, it's almost one in three have been depressed, hopeless. Where is the hope? For some of us, that's no statistic. Like, we, we have tasted and seen hopelessness on our own. We know what it's like to know the darkness of hopelessness, right? We know it in our families. We know it in our histories. Hopeless. What do we do when hope has died? And what is this living hope that Peter offers to us? Now, before we begin to understand this, what a living hope is, you need to know that in English, we're at a real disadvantage for understanding the Greek word hope. You see, the English word hope is rather open-ended, and it communicates more about your desire than reality, right? So, I hope the Oakland days will stay in Oakland, right? That may be my desire, but that connection to reality is pretty tentative at this point, right? <laughs> or, I hope the 49ers won't knock the Cowboys out of the playoffs for the third year in a row. My Dallas Cowboys. That's, it, it's, it communicates my desire, but not reality. But the Greek word hope actually communicates something that's much more certain. The Greek word is elpis. And it's altogether more sure. It has less to do with your desire and more about what will actually happen. Our English word expect is a better word, a better translation. It's an expectation. Like, I hope the sun will rise tomorrow. I fully expect that it will, which is why I shut my curtains at night. 
I expect. So this living hope is an expectation. What should we expect? What should we expect? What should we hope for? Well, let's look back again at the last part of this verse 3. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, verse 4, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. In other words, what he's, he's saying, we, we expect this inheritance that's waiting for us. This inheritance waiting for us. And there's three modifiers we need to look at. Three mod- he says imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Un- imperishable, right? Remember Y2K? You had to like uh, get all these imperishable cans. The things that won't perish, that won't last. How about that? 1999 reference. How about that? Imperishable. It, it doesn't perish. It will keep on going. Undefiled. That is pure, wholesome. This inheritance not only does not perish, it's something that's good and beautiful and pure. And then unfading. This inheritance is a shiny and beautiful a thousand years from now as it is now, when it first began. Together, these three terms connote something of a certainty. And this inheritance you can't alter, that it's, it's sure, it's certain. This inheritance, like the hope for it, is certain. Sometimes our hope dies because it wasn't a sure hope, because we've hoped in something that we shouldn't have. In Virginia, we picked up a dresser one of our neighbors had cast out on the street. Um, I'm a big fan of furniture. You might find out when you come to my house. And I thought it looked really beautiful. And it had four legs. Four legs. And our, our movers, as they were moving us here, they piled a ton of stuff on top of it inside the moving truck. And, and when they were in, unpacking here in California, um, when they went to bring it in, the legs just snapped. Both of them. Both the two of the four. It wasn't meant to hold that weight. Like that dresser, that old dresser that someone else threw away for a good reason, it wasn't meant to hold the weight. And sometimes, friend, friends, our hope, we put our hope in something that's not meant to bear that weight. Have you ever piled your hope on something that could not hold it? Like a job? a relationship, a move, your family. Sometimes our hopelessness is the inevitable result of hoping in the wrong thing. Hoping in the wrong thing. And God intends our hopelessness to actually wake us up. Don't you see that what you are hoping in is not real, is not lasting, is not certain? In fact, what Scripture calls that, when we hope in the wrong things, it calls that sin. An idol. We put our hope, which is another word of, another way of saying our future faith, into something that could not hold it. And God invites us in our hopelessness to say, I'm not going to hope in that any longer. There is a, a, a better, a living hope, a sure hope that is imperishable, unfading, and undefiled. Time and again, God exhorts us 
not to hope in earthly things, but in Him alone. Right? Even the greatest fortune of money can be lost by death, war, economic downturn. That's why Jesus, in His Sermon on the Mount, He counsels, He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. This is Jesus saying, Hey, there are two places that you can store up your your inheritance, your hope. The earthly or the heavenly. The earthly is going to let you down. But there is a place, the heavenly, where it is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Why? Why? Why is the heavenly so sure? Well, Peter says that it's kept in heaven for you, verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. In other words, we get this image that not only is God guarding our inheritance, He's guarding us themselves. He is going to make sure that He will come through in for our hope. You see, our hope in God is sure because it is secured by a God who is sure, whose power reigns supreme and perfectly guards us. That's who our God is. That's why He's worthy of our hope. But there's this another part of what we should expect, this expectation. Remember that hope is. We expect, it says, we expect in verse 5, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That leads us to our next point. So we have a sure hope of coming salvation. Coming salvation, point number two. Coming salvation. A salvation ready to be revealed. That is, in in the future. That is, in the future. And and he continues this, if you look down in verse 9. He says, hey, your joy, your faith, is going to give you the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So what else do we hope for? We hope for a coming salvation. But I thought, I thought that Jesus had already saved me. I thought Jesus had already saved us, like on the cross. Right? We, we speak in the, in the church, <coughs> we often speak of salvation in the past tense. Like what Jesus did on the cross. I once was blind, but now I see. Right? That's past tense. Once you believe in Jesus, you are saved. Now that's certainly not wrong, but it's not wholly right either. And I think we under, we intuitively understand this, right? Even if you deny it, you know the places where you still need salvation. You know them. The sins that yet best you, the sufferings that yet afflict you. We cry out rightfully with the psalmist, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Psalm 69.1 Or save me from the mouth of the lion. Psalm 22.21 Even Christians need saving from anger, explosive rage, and simmering bitterness. We need saving from lust, the wandering eyes, the jealous craving for someone else's life and stuff. We need saving from the unrepentant, self-righteous pride that we 
wake up in just naturally. And what Peter says, he says, hey, to you who need more salvation, it is coming. There is a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It is coming, says Peter. Here's how I think we can think about this. For the last 25 years, there's been a really good emphasis on, on justification by faith. Right? That is, that, that it's the doctrine that says we are justified, that is accounted righteous and good, not for anything that we have done, but because of Jesus Christ and what He has done on the cross. Justification. And that is good and right. And yet, friends, our salvation is so much bigger and broader than just the doctrine of justification. You see, when Scripture begins to talk about what Christ has done for us, it tries to use so many metaphors because it's so big. It's like a diamond that you see all these different aspects of it. That's why the the Bible gives us metaphor after metaphor. It says, it's like you just got freed from slavery. That's what salvation is. It's like you're an orphan and God comes and adopts you. It's like you're a bride that... They committed adultery, and yet God is your husband comes back for you and forgives you and makes you his own. Salvation is much bigger and more beautiful than just justification. And Peter's point here, actually throughout the whole letter, is that there is more salvation coming. That your salvation is not over. That when you, when you, when you come to believe, when you express faith, that there is more to come. By the way, that's actually what we heard over and over again in our series in First Thessalonians. The whole message of First Thessalonians is there is, is Jesus is coming to save you. Jesus is coming to save you. <clears throat> and Peter's point here is not only that there is a future salvation, there's a coming. His point is actually that you fix your eyes on that. That you look towards that coming salvation. It's about a perspective. He pushes us towards a future orientation. He doesn't say, look back at the cross, or look at God's grace at the cross. You know what he says? He says, look forward. Look forward. Set your hope fully on the grace that's going to be brought to you at Christ's revelation. That's a direct quote of verse 13 of chapter 1. He says, set your hope fully on the grace and the grace that is coming. Remember Frankel in the concentration camps. Between life and death, it was about hope. It was not what they believed about the past that mattered. What mattered was what they believed about the future. Did they have some sort of meaning that could transcend the suffering? And that's what Peter is saying here. He's saying, hey, you are exiles, and so you need to have a clear picture of the future of what is coming, a hope that can last these sufferings. And there is such grace that is on the the horizon. Look at that. Set your hope fully on that. Don't look at your surrounding circumstances. Look instead at the future. And the salvation that's coming is not just a release as if all we do as exiles is we get to go home. Did you catch the language of glory? Look at verse 7. So that, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, 
though it is tested by fire, may be found result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We'll come back to those trials in our last point. But do you hear him saying, there is glory ahead. It's not just a hope of release, it's a hope of glory that is coming for the Christian. And we believe that that part, that, that glory that is a part of our salvation, it, it's a part of our salvation. Listen to, to Romans 8.30. This is Paul. He says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's glory, glorification in your future. That is what the coming salvation is. It's not merely that you're saved from your sin. There is glory to be had. It's like you as an exile are being released, and yet you're being released, and you know that when you get home, you're going to be a millionaire. That you are rich. That all your friends and family are going to be where you are. Glorification. So friends, that leads me to ask you the question, how future-oriented are you as a Christian? Where is your gaze? Is your gaze on the future? You see, as a Christian, as all Christians should be futurists, meaning that we are oriented towards the future. But let me clarify a danger here. You see, our hope is often oriented towards some future circumstance change, right? Have you ever said, like, I hope life will get better? Like, once my newborn starts to sleep, then I can live, right? Or if I can just get a spouse, or if I can just have this job change, or if I can just move, then. You hear how that, 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 that's putting your hope in a circumstance. And that's not the Christian hope. You see, as Christians, we are guaranteed very little about our circumstances. We get cancer, we can lose a child, any of those. We have no guarantees in this life. And yet, we do have a guarantee that God will be with us, that He is guarding us, that after this life, there is a glory and a salvation that is coming. That is worth putting your hope in. Our hope is not in a change of circumstances, but in the Lord of our circumstances. Amen? I'm going to teach you all how to do amen. We'll get there someday. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, a Baptist who's raised in the South. So we'll, we'll get there. Um, so you might say, what, what, what ground do we have for this hope? What ground? Like, how do I know that this, this future thing is not just some fantasy that I'm, 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 I'm dreaming in, like a better country or better, right? How do I know that? What is the ground? Well, all this Christian hope is premised upon the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That leads us to our third point. That we have, we have this sure hope of coming salvation because of Christ's resurrection. Go back to verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you see that? This new life, this new life which incorporates this, this living hope, it comes through the fact that Jesus, who once was dead, has now been raised. And this is particularly powerful when you think 
that Peter actually was a witness to the crucifixion. Like, the, the, the person writing this letter, he was a witness. He saw his Lord die. He perhaps even touched the body of Jesus. He knew the death of hope. He had had all these, these hopes that he had hoped that Jesus would fulfill. Remember, he was the first to confess Jesus as the Messiah. And then he sees Jesus die on the cross. Peter knows what it's like to have his hope dashed. But Peter, too, was a witness of the resurrection of Jesus. He saw his hopes resurrected with the resurrection of the Lord. And friends, it's the resurrection of Jesus that, that, that is the ground of our living hope. Here is a man who conquered death. Here was a man who saw, who many saw alive after his resurrection. He defeated death, which is the mortal end to all our hopes, right? If there is any hope, it would be a man who could defeat death and promise to return. I recently watched Everything Everywhere All at Once. What a great millennial internet film. <laughs> it's just epic. And towards the end of the movie, it ends with this line. We can do whatever we want. Nothing matters. We can do whatever we want. Nothing matters. In, in this whole film, they're struggling with the fact that there is no meaning in their world. There is no meaning and for them, you can either despair, nihilism, or you can create your own meaning. You can find meaning in family, which is what they ultimately do. But you can do whatever we want. Nothing matters. I don't think that actually gives us a hope. Because if, cause when you die, family is nothing. Right? There will be a, a day when all of us will die. And then what? Paul... Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then, then nothing matters. He's more nihilistic than everything, everywhere all at once. He says, if there is no resurrection, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But he says, because there has been a resurrection, everything matters. Everything matters. That even the, even what we eat and drink, even how we eat and drink, matters. You see, the resurrection is the ground of hope that our labors are not in vain. That there is something, that salvation is coming. That the God who, re who raised Jesus from the dead is going to come and raise you from the dead who put your faith in Him. Now, Peter is not convinced, not, not content just to give us a hope. He wants us to do something with that hope. And what he wants us to do is to, to revel in it, to rejoice, to delight in it. And that leads us to our last and final point, that we are to rejoice. Because of Christ's resurrection, we rejoice in the sure hope of coming salvation. Now, Peter has already modeled this. He begins his letter to them, not even talking, like he's greeted the churches, and then he begins with a, a conversation with God. Look at verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's like, hey y'all, y'all wait, I just need to worship for a while. 
I want to worship. I want to rejoice in what God has done. He can't help himself. His heart is overflowing with the beauty and glory of what God has done for him and what God will do. Friends, he rejoices even as he shepherds the flock. And this brief phrase actually has an allusion to the resurrection. Do you see how he calls God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? That's an allusion to the resurrection because it was only in the resurrection that Jesus confirmed that he was the Son of God. What Peter is doing here is he's rejoicing in the gospel. Blessed be the God and Father who's been so merciful to us that he has given the hopeless hope in resurrection. Peter models this rejoicing, but then he also invites us to rejoice in verse 6. Look at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. He says, hey, I've rejoiced, and I want you to rejoice. I want you to rejoice, even when you are in the midst of hardships. Even. Now why? How can we rejoice? Is Peter just being masochistic here? Right? Oh, I love the pain. Come on. No. He actually gives us two reasons to rejoice. In addition to the fact that salvation is coming. Right? He's saying, hey, if you're in trial, you can rejoice because salvation is coming for you. There's two more reasons. He calls it a little while. He says these trials are brief. Especially in the light of eternal glory. This is what Paul says. The same, Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If you take all of eternity, like these trials are like a second in light of the glory that is coming. In other words, the, the, the year-long struggle with, with whatever it is, depression, cancer, let's say a five-year bout with cancer, like in eternity that is nothing. And there's glory that's going to so outweigh that moment. Struggling through a hard marriage is going to be like a five seconds of indigestion in terms of the long, the glory that is to come. He says, this suffering is brief, so you can rejoice. But he also says something else. He's saying these trials that we face actually prove and purify our faith. He says, so the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by the fire. Peter says, this testing is like a refinement of gold. And your faith... Your faith is so much more valuable than gold. These trials make your faith beautiful and pure and right. And not only that, but just like the gold comes out glorified, purified, so your faith is going to give you glory. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that glory, he's, amb- he's ambiguous here, purposefully, about whether that's your glory or Jesus' glory. And I think it's intentional, because your union with Jesus is such that when Jesus is 
is, is revealed, His glory is revealed, that you will participate in it. That you reflected that as God looks at you, His glorious face, that you'll actually reflect it like the shiny gold. Or here's another way of saying this. Do you, do you see how Peter is addressing the, the past, present, and future of these believers? He says, the resurrection, which is past, has secured a glorious future so that we can rejoice now in the present. The past resurrection secures our future glory so we can rejoice presently. Or here's another way of saying it, that God redeems time for the Christian. Like, he pours his grace into your life so that whether you look at your past or present or future, all you see is grace. He surrounds us in time with his salvation so that when we look at the past, we see his salvation. And when we look at the future, we see his salvation so that we rejoice in the present. Do you see that? God wants your time to be saturated with his grace and salvation. There is no time apart from his grace. His mercies are new every morning. So I want to leave you with two quick applications. Two quick applications. First, and uh, some of you might, this might seem strange. Look at verse 8. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Friends, do you have that inexpressible joy? Do you have that? Do you have hope in this coming salvation? If you don't, then it might be that you don't believe in Jesus. You put your hope in something else. And what Peter calls us to is to put our faith and our hope in Jesus alone. That he is the one who gives our life meaning. That gives our future meaning. So friends, if that is not who you are, if you are hopeless today, I invite you to put your hope in Jesus. But for some of us, we have done that. It's just been a while. And we're, not, we're not living that inexpressible joy. Perhaps you believed once You've not known his joy in such a long time. Perhaps you've been overly attentive to these earthly things. And Peter says, hey, I want you to look towards that inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Where is your focus today? Is your focus in the future grace that the Christ will meet you with? And friends, this, this rejoicing takes discipline. It takes discipline over and over again to say, what am I going to look at? Am I going to look at my present circumstances, or am I going to look at what God has given me in Jesus Christ? Peter says, I want you to know this inexpressible joy. A joy that can't be expressed. A joy that doesn't make sense. Because we know that what is coming is glory. The glory of salvation that Jesus is bringing to us. So friends, because of Christ's resurrection, let's rejoice in the sure hope of coming salvation. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you that you are so rich to us. Well, we didn't ask Jesus to raise, we didn't ask Jesus to come and save us, to come and 
come and submit himself to the cross to come and be raised on our behalf. And yet you've been so gracious to give us that. And not only that, but we have this inheritance, O Lord, that is sure and certain. And so, Lord, would you take our eyes off our present and put it on the future to where Jesus will come for us. Oh, Lord, we ask for you to show us by your Spirit that we may rejoice and have this inexpressible joy. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.